Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing. Take your Bibles. Turn once again this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, if you'll follow along as I read our text. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, beginning now. In verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, in response to the question, what is the state of the church in this country at this time? We began looking at the seventh and final letter to the churches from the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically the letter to the church in Laodicea. And as I said last week, this letter is as vital and as relevant to the present day as it was when it was first written. In fact, of all of the letters, none is more applicable to the church today than the letter to Laodicea. And as I told you last week, commentators and theologians agree that if there is one church that typifies the church in general today in America, it is the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. In fact, several commentators said they believe the majority of churches in the 21st century are just that, lukewarm. And for the benefit of those who were not here last week and for those who were not watching our live stream, it would be good to take some time to briefly review what we covered last Sunday, and so I'm going to take just some time to do that this morning. You'll remember the seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are not symbolic of different periods of church history. Rather, they are actual letters written to seven literal churches that existed 
when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And these letters contain a specific message from the Lord Jesus to each individual church. And it seems that the Lord chose these seven churches because they represent the different characteristics and conditions that have been present in churches from the beginning and will be to the end. And each of the seven letters is addressed to the angel. It means the messenger. And Commentators agree that this letter is addressed to the pastor of the church. And this last and final letter is no different. I mean, we see in verse 14 that it's addressed to the the messenger, the pastor, the, the angel of the church in Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was a very prosperous city. Their strategic location, their three industries of finance, wool, and medicine all contributed to making Laodicea into an extremely wealthy and, and prosperous city. It's probably much like a, an Orange County, a California. In fact, so wealthy was the city that after a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, they proudly rejected any financial aid whatsoever from the Roman government to help in the rebuilding. Instead, relying on their own resources, they paid for all the reconstruction themselves. And Laodicea was a proud, prosperous, affluent, self-sufficient city. But there was one disadvantage to being a citizen of Laodicea. Despite its great prosperity, the city had a problem. They had a problem with water. They didn't have an adequate and convenient source for good drinking water. And that being the case, they had to bring water in through a series of aqueducts from two other cities several miles away. The first was Colossae, which was located at the foot of some mountains and had a nice runoff of snow melt. And so the water in Colossae was very cold and refreshing. Also nearby was Hierapolis, which boasted of its hot springs. The water uh, there was so hot that in some places it it came out of the ground as nothing but steam. So the water there was steaming hot. Those hot mineral baths were uh, looked at as therapeutic, relaxing. And the only problem was was by the time the water traveled, the six to ten miles from these two cities to Laodicea, it was no longer relaxingly hot nor refreshingly cold. Rather, it was nauseatingly lukewarm. And what about the church? Well, like the the other six churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the the church in Laodicea was probably started as an outreach of the Apostle Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. And it seems one of the Apostle Paul's disciples and co-workers, Epaphras, who we learn about in Colossians, Epaphras, who planted the church at nearby Colossae, also seems to be the one who planted the church in Laodicea. And so the church in Laodicea had a great beginning, but it had not remained faithful. The affluent, prideful self-sufficiency of the city had made its way into the church so that the church saw themselves as wealthy, prospering, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. They didn't need the help of anyone, unfortunately, including God, and they were just fine all by themselves. But of course, the church was badly deceived, and it had become as bland and as lukewarm as the city's water supply. In the rest of verse 14, Jesus identified himself to the church in Laodicea as the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
The Laodicean Christians either forgot or simply ignored the exalted and preeminent place that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had lost sight of who he is and and what he has done and what he is doing. They had a very inflated opinion of themselves and, and their spirituality. They thought very highly of themselves. And so the Lord Jesus identified himself to them as the truth of God, the faithful and true witness, and and the originator and the ruler of all creation. And as such, he knew the true spiritual condition of Laodicea. And he began by saying to the church in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Christ knew exactly what was going on in the church and in the lives of each one of the individuals in that church. And what he saw did not please him. And there was something seriously wrong with their commitment. I mean, having seen their works, there was absolutely nothing good the Lord could say. He saw nothing to praise or commend, not one single thing. Everything was a stench to his nostrils, an ache to his heart, and nauseating to his stomach. And the Lord used the lukewarm water of Laodicea as an analogy for the lukewarm condition of the Laodicean church and believers. And he's saying to them, I wish you were like the cold water that refreshes, or like the hot water that, that relaxes as an, and, is an, and is therapeutic, but, but you're like lukewarm water that is neither refreshing or relaxing, but foul and disgusting. As one man said, our Lord's point to the, to the Laodiceans is something like this. You are providing neither healing for the spiritually sick, nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. You're spiritually lukewarm, and and I will not tolerate you. Jesus then said to them in verse 16, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will. And it means I'm at the point of, I am about to, I intend to spit you out of my mouth. It means to vomit. And the Laodicean church was not just unappealing to Jesus, Uh, It was nauseating. In effect, Jesus said, your lukewarmness makes me sick to my stomach, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. In in the spiritual sense, lukewarmness is, is a picture of indifference, a picture of compromise. A lukewarm Christian is one who is half hearted in their Christian walk. They would never say that or probably even acknowledge that. Like the Laodiceans, they would have a very high opinion of themselves and their spirituality. But a lukewarm Christian is half-hearted in their walk. They don't take the Lord seriously. They don't take the Bible seriously. They don't let the Bible serve as a guide for their lives. They pick and choose what they're going to believe and obey. A lukewarm Christian doesn't take his own sin serious. He takes the sin of others pretty serious and often quick to point it out. Lukewarm Christian is complacent, apathetic, half-hearted when it comes to the things of God. It's evident in their lives. 
You see, we can say whatever we want, but the way that we live, our actions or our lack of action speaks volumes. Because what we believe is what we do. A lukewarm Christian's witness is non-existent. A lukewarm Christian is one who compromises with the world, trying to live the Christian life while at the same time enjoying all of the pleasures of the world, usually to the neglect of the things of God. As far as the church itself is concerned, the church in Laodicea was a compromising, comfortable church because it was filled with compromising, comfortable Christians. You could go there for years and find it very comfortable and pleasurable. Unlike their original pastor, the pastor who received this letter probably taught just enough truth to salve their conscience, but not so much that you would ever be convicted, challenged, rebuked, or corrected. You'd never have your conscience pricked at Laodicea. At the church of Laodicea, you'd only be encouraged, stroked, and flattered with positive, affirming messages of self-esteem and self-fulfillment. They were always wanting to bring out the champion in you. So it was more of a Christian club, a social gathering, more like a, a country club than a church. The Laodiceans didn't consider themselves to be compromising, though. They, they thought they had it all together. Jesus said to them in verse 17, You say, the Laodiceans said, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. When the Laodiceans looked at their church and, and themselves, they thought, hey, we're rich, we, we, we've prospered, we don't need anything. I mean, they had very high opinions of themselves and their church, but they could not have been more wrong in their assessment. And the Laodicean Christians were deceived Christians. Like their city, they boasted about who they were and what they had. They, they thought every church should be just like them. Well, they may have been a great organization, but they were not a great church. Not in our Lord's estimation. Jesus had a very different assessment. His evaluation of their true condition was 180 degrees from theirs. I mean, polar opposites. Look back at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing. In other words, you don't know, you don't understand, you, you have no idea that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They said one thing, but Jesus said, you don't know. You, you don't even realize. You don't know that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a thing to come from the lips of Jesus. I mean, he made clear that they claimed one thing, but the truth was, in fact, something else. The church at Laodicea exalted themselves above reality, but they were blind to their true condition because you see a cloud of self-deception hovered over them as it does many professed believers today. I mean, many professed believers, you ask them about their spiritual life, and it's always a list of things they don't do. That doesn't mean anything. Because unbelievers cannot do those things, whatever those things are. 
using imagery and illustrations that, that would hit them right between the eyes and right where they lived, Jesus exposed their spiritual destitution, deception, and desperate condition. I mean, there was a vast, vast discrepancy between how the church viewed themselves and what the Lord saw in them because they were using different standards of measure. As we said last week, the Laodiceans were measuring their church by worldly standards of success. But Jesus measures by a a different standard, a biblical standard. The Laodicean believers and thus the church were half-hearted in their commitment to Christ. They had compromised the truth for the sake of comfort and had adapted to the culture instead of living as a counterculture. Their problem was not physical and economic, but spiritual. Their abundant resources, their affluence, had dulled their sense of dependence upon God and and the gospel. They were blind. They were short-sighted to their true condition. They had no vision of God, of their own hearts, or of the world's need. And as we said last week, people may love a lukewarm church, and the Laodicean church was filled with people who loved to have it that way. I mean, they were there because that's what they wanted. But while people may love a church like that, The Lord Jesus does not. In fact, he says it makes him sick. Jesus exposed the Laodiceans. And now they knew who they really were. They could no longer plead ignorance and and a response was called for. And the Lord didn't stop with merely pointing out their problem. No, he's he's not like that. No, he wounds that he might heal. Even though the church was repulsive to him, he took time to give them counsel. Beginning now in verse 18, he gives the solution to their lukewarm spiritual condition. And we'll pick it up now in verse 18, where we left off last week and where the Lord says now, if you look at verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me Buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Our Lord begins by saying, I counsel you. It means uh, I advise, a little more stronger, I, I exhort, I'm exhorting you. And the letter to Laodicea is the only one of the seven in which Jesus uses the phrase, I counsel, or I advise, I exhort you. And he identified himself to the church as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and now the faithful and true witness is going to give them counsel. And his counsel is to be heeded and followed, because his counsel can be trusted. And the arrogant attitude and smug satisfaction of the Laodicean, uh, of the Laodicean's Christianity is confronted and encountered now with counsel that they make specific purchases from Jesus in precisely those areas where they were so certain they had no need. His, he counsels them to buy from him three spiritual items that correspond to their condition. 
The Lord's counsel played on the three industries the city of Laodicea was known for and proud of, wealth, fine garments, and eye salve. And he said, I counsel you to buy these things from me. First of all, he says, I counsel you to buy gold, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. The church in Laodicea had money. The believers themselves were affluent, so the church had money. They had resources, but what they needed was not Laodicea's gold. What they needed was not more affluence. They needed the gold that they could only get from Jesus. I counsel you to buy from me, our Lord said. I mean, only from Jesus can true and lasting riches be purchased. And the currency of that purchase is always the same. Faith, trust, radical dependence on him and only him. Now, some people believe that the Laodicean church was filled only with unbelievers. And that what this is, is a call to salvation. But I don't believe that. I mean, every church is going to have some unbelievers. There will always be tares among the wheat. And that was true then, just as it's true in the church today, and will be all the way till the end. I mean, so no doubt there were unbelievers in that church. But I do not believe the Laodicean church was made up of only unbelievers, and that Jesus is calling them here to salvation. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, Jesus did not say to the Laodiceans, as he did to the church of Sardis, the dead church, you know, he said to Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I mean, they were spiritually dead. And Jesus said that, called them out. He says, you're spiritually dead. You have a name, you're alive, but you're dead. If the Laodiceans were dead spiritually, the Lord would have said so. These people were not dead. They were not without spiritual life. He said they were lukewarm. They were half-hearted, compromising Christians. And secondly, if they were all unbelievers, the Lord would not say to them in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Because the Lord Jesus does not reprove and discipline unbelievers. That is something that he reserves for his own children. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So it seems obvious that those in the church at Laodicea were indeed Christians, but they're lukewarm, compromising Christians. And so no doubt the church was made up of believers and, and some unbelievers. But the cure for their spiritual poverty is the same. Faith. First, faith for salvation, then follows faith for sanctification. The gold refined by fire Jesus speaks of is faith in the sense of faithfulness, in the sense of living in utter dependence upon him. And the Laodiceans were proud, self-sufficient, trusting, and depending upon their own resources and efforts rather than trusting in and depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But you see, being truly rich as a Christian involves recognizing our complete dependence upon God. Oh, we sing, I need thee every hour as if we're utterly dependent upon God, but we don't live like that. Being truly rich as a Christian involves recognizing our complete and utter dependence upon God. And the exact opposite of that was happening in the church at Laodicea. And so although they were wealthy, you know, affluent materially speaking, Jesus says they were, they're, they're poor spiritually. They needed the spiritual wealth that comes only by a constant and abiding faith and trust in Christ. The Laodiceans needed to recognize their spiritual poverty and their wretched condition and repent. They needed to turn from their self-sufficiency for true riches, gold refined in the fire. In other words, a a high-quality faith capable of withstanding trial. Again, faith in the sense of faithfulness, trusting in and relying upon Christ and his resources, all of the riches of his grace, instead of in themselves and their own resources and talents and abilities. Listen, self-sufficiency is the direct opposite of faith. So the Laodiceans are exhorted to recognize their inadequacy and and in faith to seek the face of God, you know, abandon their prideful self-sufficiency and to once again live in dependence upon Jesus. And I cannot help but think that included in this exhortation is also a call to return to the Word of God. I mean, David said the Word of God is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold in Psalm 19. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then in Psalm 119.127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. And the call of the Lord to Laodicea is to come back to the place of trusting in Christ and his word. They were trusting in themselves. They were compromising the truth. The Word of God was not being taught, and and that had led to their spiritual poverty. As one man said, Laodicea's pride was being fattened on comfortable sermons, but Laodicea's soul was starved for the Word of God. But you know what? You can have lukewarm Christians even in a church where the Word of God is faithfully taught. And so the first thing the Lord counseled them to do was to buy gold from him. In other words, they must repent, return to that place of living in utter dependence upon Christ and his word and all of the resources that they had in him. And Hebrews 12.2 says that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we need the spiritual wealth that comes only by constant and abiding faith in Christ. I mean, this is the wealth unlike earthly riches which will endure forever. I mean, day by day we must renew our faith and and dependence in and upon the Lord Jesus Christ for everything that we need. 
Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Secondly, he counseled them to buy, notice again, verse 18, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You know, in the physical sense, they could buy the uh, and clothe themselves with the black wool garments manufactured in Laodicea. But in their self-reliance, spiritually speaking, Jesus said they were naked. And without a doubt, this must have been a a stark revelation to the proud Laodiceans. I mean, after all, uh, weren't they famous for their clothing? I mean, didn't the the black sheep on the hillside produce a wool that was sought all over the world? And didn't they clothe themselves with these luxurious garments? Yet the Lord says to them, you're naked. You're naked. Spiritual nakedness speaks of defeat and humiliation. At the beginning of the letter, Jesus said to them, I know your works. I mean, all they really were, all they said, all they did and didn't do, and the motives behind it all were naked and exposed to the eyes of Christ. I mean, before the one whose eyes are a flame of fire, the Laodiceans were stripped naked and exposed for who they really were. I mean, there was nothing to hide their shame from God. There's a deep connection in the Bible between shame and clothing, isn't there? And before they sinned, Adam and Eve were innocent, unashamed, had uh, absolutely nothing to hide and nothing to fear, and so they, they had no need of clothing. But after their sin, they were ashamed, and so sought to clothe themselves. And of course, then the Lord provided garments of, of skin for them. The church in Laodicea may have been clothed in the fine, black, fashionable garments of the Laodicean or that they were so proud of. But Jesus counseled them to get from him white garments. White garments that would cover the shame of their spiritual nakedness. And later in Revelation, these fine white garments, bright and pure, are identified with the righteous deeds of the saints. You know, righteous deeds that always accompany genuine saving faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of works. But a genuine and true salvation will always result in good works. And I'm always amazed at, you know, the, the, the free grace crowd. Oh, Anytime you talk about obedience and good works, it's like, oh, we don't have to do anything. We're saved by grace. Well, it's true if, if you mean you don't have to do anything as far as works so that you're saved. Salvation's by grace. It's true if you're talking about uh, you don't have to do anything to uh, keep your salvation or to earn God's favor. But quite often, that's merely an excuse for a lack of, of discipline in their lives. A lack of the spiritual disciplines, I should say. 
a lack of, of, re, of real good works, a lack of just the basic things that every Christian will do, not because they have to, but rather because they understand what Christ has done for them. And they love him. And they want to serve him. They, they treasure him above all things. And there's nothing they won't do for him. They desire to no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Jesus is calling the church to clothe themselves in the righteous deeds of a believer rather than the filthy rags of their own righteousness and human endeavor. They needed to be clothed with good works that were pleasing to God. Good works done with the right motive for the glory of God. Good works done not by might or by power, but by His Spirit. Good works done in utter dependence upon Christ, trusting in Him rather than themselves. And third, He counseled them to buy Isaac. Notice verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes or ointment to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I mean, Laodicea was famous for its eye salve. It was actually called Fergie and Powder. It was from the famous medical school there. But ironically, in its prideful self-sufficiency, the Laodicean church was blind to its true spiritual condition. Oh, they thought they so had it together. But Jesus said, no, no, you really don't. In fact, you're not only poor and naked, you're blind. The Laodiceans were blind. They could not see spiritual reality. They were living in a fool's paradise, proud of a church that was about to be rejected, about to be vomited out by Christ. I mean, their lukewarmness, their apathy and indifference, their compromise had, had, had clouded their spiritual vision. They didn't see the serious condition they were in. They didn't see the serious condition the church was in. Nor do we today. If Christians today understood the, 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 how des the desperateness of the situation, if they understood the, the, just the, the dire straits that the church is in, that our nation is in, I mean, they would be flocking to the church. They would never miss. They would, they would be praying upon their face, pleading with Almighty God. But this is just like it was. I mean, we're going on like it was in the days of Noah. Just everybody going along life, like life is normal. Like everything is okay. It's like moving around deck furniture on the Titanic. We don't see the serious condition that the church is in, that we ourselves are in as Christians. We become desensitized. 
And we're going through the motions. It really is. I mean, so much of what, I mean, it just seems to me like people just see the church as a country club, a a social gathering, more like a service club, like, you know, the Moose Lodge or something. You know, everybody just comes and we hang out and have a good time. And if we can just get people to do something maybe once a month, then nobody will have to do very much at all. And we can just all have a good time. That is not the purpose of the church. That is not why we gather to worship. And it's this way across the country. And people act like everything is okay, or at least they're sure living that way. It's not okay. Our nation stands on the verge of judgment. I mean, we're already experiencing and have been for many years God's judgment of abandonment where he just lifts his hand and lets us have exactly what we want. Loved ones, wake up. It's serious. It's deadly serious. And so much of the church is asleep. So many Christians are asleep, and they're just like the Laodiceans. They think it's okay. They have one opinion. Oh, aren't things great? No, they're not great. Not at all. The lukewarmness and indifference and compromise today has clouded the spiritual vision of many And we do not see the serious condition that we are in. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we learn that the more we grow and mature as believers, the more like Christ we become, the more effective and fruitful we become. Because you see, effectiveness and fruitfulness in the Christian life is directly related to the extent that we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ himself. But in that same passage uh, there in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter also teaches that when a believer is not growing and maturing in the Lord, his spiritual vision is affected. And he addresses believers who are not growing and maturing in verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says, For whoever lacks these qualities, and these are uh, qualities or characteristics that, that should mark and should be growing in the life of every believer. And so he's saying whoever lacks these qualities, in other words, who, whoever is not growing and maturing in their faith, Peter says that person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I mean, Peter uses blind and nearsighted somewhat synonymously. And he means that believers who are not growing and maturing are blind to heavenly things, are occupied with the earthly. They can't really see what's afar off, but only what's near. In other words, they see only as far as the world around them. Their short-sightedness has left them blind to the big picture, the, the promise of eternity and the glory of becoming more like Christ. 
They only see themselves and they think of everything as it relates to themselves and, and their present circumstances and they lack spiritual insight. They're, they live for the here and now, not for eternity. I mean, their vision is earthbound, so they're tied to earthly possessions and temporary promises. And their temporal focus quenches their motivation to be diligent to grow in godliness. And in in focusing on this present life and living for themselves, they squander the resources and provision of power that God has given them. And not only are they blind and nearsighted, Peter says they also have forgotten that he was they have also forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. In other words, lukewarm, blind Christians who are not growing and maturing have forgotten all that God has done for them. They have forgotten what they've been saved from. And when they look to the past, the truth of their redemption, the forgiveness that made them so excited at first has lost its grip on them. God's grace is no longer that amazing to them. They have forgotten what it cost Christ to purchase their salvation and forgiveness. They have become indifferent and unfeeling and careless. And that was the Laodiceans. And that is many, many people in the church today. It's obvious. It's obvious. And Jesus tells the Laodiceans that the blindness of their self-deception could only be remedied by the healing salve or anointment made available by him. And such healing only comes from turning from sin and looking to Christ in the gospel and into his word for instruction and, and wisdom. I mean, they desperately needed the truth of God which only Christ could bring them. And if they turned back to Christ, the Holy Spirit would enable them to see spiritual truth clearly. The eyes of of their understanding would be enlightened. And so in addition to offering them a supply of wealth and the finest garments, Jesus now offered them the ability to see. Obviously, the salve that Jesus offered had to do with the ability to see spiritual realities, and we desperately need that in our own lives and in the church today. And this is so vitally important because honest evaluation is essential for spiritual restoration. And as one man said, spiritual compromise and complacency are spiritual cataracts that shut off the light of spiritual sight. And so regularly, daily in fact, we need to ask the Lord in prayer and and by the word, Lord, show me my true spiritual condition. Lord Jesus, reveal to me my spiritual blind spots and areas of sin that, that I no longer see. Help me, Lord. Help me to see myself as you see me. Let me read you what one commentator wrote. It's a little lengthy, but stay with me. He said, what informs the way you see the world? 
Do you view the world through lenses given to you by the Holy Spirit? And have you ground those lenses in the pages of Holy Scripture? Or has the Spirit of the age placed a set of lenses over your eyes that you do not even realize are there? Here are some questions to help you evaluate the nature of the lenses on your eyes. Or perhaps we could say that these questions will help you discern whether your ophthalmologist is from Laodicea or whether you have this eye salve that Jesus offers. Here's his questions. Which do you view as more pressing, more urgent activity? Reading or watching the news or reading and studying the Bible? Obviously, both are valuable. But on a day-to-day basis, if you only have time to do one or the other, which gets done? If you only had time to do one thing or the other and your choices were between taking the time to pray and checking your email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, which would you view as the more pressing activity? If you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket that was guaranteed to win a million dollars or an empty bank account with the absolute assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you trust him, which would you choose? Would you choose to have more money, or would you choose the opportunity to trust God? Which would you choose? To have your hopes and dreams realized in the American political scene by seeing all your candidates elected and all your political issues dealt with the way you want them handled, or the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and a stranger for whom this world is not home. You see, this man's questions are trying to get at four significant key questions. What shapes our thinking, the world or the Bible, You know, what communication do we view as non-negotiable, horizontal with other people or vertical with God? You know, what do we trust, money or Christ? And with what do we ultimately identify, a political party or the kingdom of God? We need the gold and the fine garments Jesus offers. We need the eye salve that he offers. We need him. Because apart from him, everything else is garbage in the sense of having any true spiritual or eternal value. The only thing that will matter when you are on your deathbed and a breath or two away from eternity is not how much money you had or how much fun you had or where you went or you did this or you did that. None of that's going to matter. The only thing that is going to matter is whether you had faith, a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no Christian on his deathbed is ever going to regret that he served the Lord too much. That's only people today who have no concept of what the church really is and think the church is a country club. The 
The Lord wanted the Laodiceans to know that he had everything they needed to live and to function as a spiritually healthy church. He is completely sufficient to supply all their needs, both in the church and as individuals, and the same is true today. But we must trust and rely upon him. And then Jesus closes the letter with three statements. In verse 19, he explains what has been driving him and everything that he has said, really in all seven letters. First, he says in verse 19, notice, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You know, amazingly, Jesus loves Laodicean Christians and churches, even though their love for him has grown cold. I mean, their sin does not quench his love. But neither is his love and grace an excuse for their sin. I mean, the point is simply their sin doesn't quench his love. And as proof of his love, he said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's saying, to prove how much I love you, I am willing to go to the extent of spanking you, basically. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to discipline you. You say, that shows love? Absolutely. Yes, it does. Ask any mom or dad. In Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The writer of Hebrews speaks of God as our loving father who disciplines his children. In fact, why don't you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. You can read this with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Read verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you can just go on and sin, keep living in sin, and you don't experience uh, God's loving discipline, then the writer of Hebrews is telling us you're not even a believer. You don't even belong to him. Because he disciplines his children. And then he says, besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those 
who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines those he loves. 1 Corinthians 11.32, Paul said, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. It's proof of his love and of our sonship. And when we get off, God will chasten us for the purpose of correction and bringing us back to himself. I mean, God's love is never cruel, but it can certainly be tough. I mean, discipline that that educates and and brings about repentance and change is what Jesus extends to to Laodicean churches. It's what Jesus extends to, to all believers everywhere. And second, in the rest of verse 19, the response Jesus expected from the Laodiceans is crystal clear. Look back at verse 19. He says, So be zealous and repent. You know, the church at Laodicea must humble themselves before the Lord, be zealous and repent. The word zealous means to be hot on fire. You know, you're lukewarm, Jesus said, but you need to be on fire. You need to be fervent in spirit and you need to repent. Now, repentance is the very last thing a sinner wants to do. And it's the very last thing that a saint, a believer, wants to do. We would rather do anything than repent. You know, people love to quote, you know, the verse from Second Chronicles, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. They forget the next part. And turn from their wicked ways means repent. We'd rather do anything than repent because we're so prideful. But Jesus says, be zealous and repent. You know, turn from your pride, your self-sufficiency, your complacency, your indifference, your compromise. Cultivate a burning heart. Be fervent and, and turn now and every day. You know, keep on with, with fire in your soul, turning from sin. You see, repentance, turning from sin one time at the beginning of our salvation is not enough. Repentance must become the daily practice and habit of a believer's life. Why? Because we sin every day. Spurgeon said, we shall never leave off repenting because we shall never leave off sinning this side of heaven. The believers in the church in Laodicea were self-reliant, and Jesus rebuked them. They were lukewarm, and he called them to be zealous and repent. And third, look at verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 might qualify as the most misused misused verse in the entire New Testament. 
this verse is, is often, I mean, so, so often used out of context. This verse is, is so often used as an evangelistic text. But this is not an evangelistic text. The verse itself is addressed not to the lost, but to who? Believers in the church at Laodicea. The context is Jesus speaking to lukewarm believers in the church. So the basic application of this verse is to the believer. And the picture is of Jesus, uh, have, uh, t- you know, he's taken a position outside the door of the church. He's knocking and knocking, you know, graciously and patiently waiting. And he stands at the door and knocks, not as a homeless transient seeking shelter, But rather, he stands at the door of the church knocking as the master of the house, expecting alert servants to respond immediately to his command and to welcome him in. And why is he outside? Well, because when a believer or believers are in sin, it breaks their fellowship and communion with God doesn't break their eternal relationship, but it sure breaks their fellowship and communion. And he's standing outside the door of the church. He's knocking. Behold, you know, look, take note, wake up. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, and he didn't say if any church, but if anyone, It's an amazing promise. Just one, anyone. And the Lord is standing outside the church, knocking, making himself known, calling to individual believers. If anyone, he said, hears my voice. And for those who respond, he promises restored fellowship and communion. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. In the Middle Eastern culture, that day, and it's, I'm sure it's true uh, in some places in the Middle East even today, to share a meal with someone spoke of hospitality and, and beyond that, that the occasion for intimate fellowship with family and close friends. In fact, sharing a meal with someone in that culture was symbolic of becoming one with that person. And that's why the Jews wouldn't never eat with Gentiles. And Jesus is telling the Laodicean believers, if they'll be zealous and repent, they'll once again know his presence and power in the church, and he'll fellowship with them. And he's appealing to them to repent so they might once again have that intimate fellowship and communion with him that they once enjoyed. But I mean, they were so caught up in themselves, so deceived, they were just going right along as a church, not even realizing that he wasn't there. Because everything they were doing was independent of his power, his presence. Jesus says, open the door, repent, repent, wake up. So that this break in our relationship might be healed and we can once again have intimate fellowship and and communion. That fellowship and communion that, that we once enjoyed. 
One commentator wrote, the question to be answered is always the relationship of Christ to the local church. Is he on the inside embraced, loved, honored, enthroned, and followed? Or is he on the outside knocking and calling for entrance to the entity that bears his name? So the Lord Jesus exhorted the Laodicean church to repent of their prideful self-sufficiency and compromise and to return to a wholehearted faith and trust in him and his word that they might once again know the fellowship and communion that they had once enjoyed as individual believers and as a church. Verse 21 is a promise to all believers. Jesus said, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus promises the one who is a conqueror could be translated an overcomer, is in a few uh, translations, I believe. But he promises the one who is a conqueror the privilege of sitting with him on his throne. Now this does not mean that we will literally sit on his throne. (laughs) It is symbolic. It simply means that we will be given the privilege by the Lord Jesus to rule and reign with him. And this, this glorious promise is to all true believers. I mean, think of it. One day, we're going to rule and reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. I mean, what Jesus promises goes beyond anything that self-reliance and worldly wealth could ever offer. One commentator wrote, he promises believers that they will sit with him on his throne He is not threatened by rivals. He is not concerned to protect his own influence, his own access to resources, and his own right to rule. He is so completely secure in his sovereignty that he can share. None can compare with him. He is matchless. Trust him. Worship him. He will never let you down. And then the Lord ends his letter with the familiar, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this exhortation from Jesus to listen and to take heart, uh, take to heart what was written is at the end of each of the seven letters. Do you think the Lord's trying to get something across? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. I mean, these letters to the seven churches are, as one man said, God's X-ray given to us so that we might examine our own lives and ministries. May the Lord help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today as a church and as individual believers. Sometimes, like Laodicea, we have uh, everything in our life and in our church except the Lord Jesus. It's amazing how uh, we can get along without him until disaster strikes or affliction comes or pain, something to get our attention. And then we're very attentive until that goes away and, and it's right back to the same old thing.
Sometimes, like Laodicea, we have everything in our life and in our church except Jesus. And God forbid that that would be true of us or of you or of me. Vance Havner puts it all in context. He said, the big question today is not, is God speaking? The really big question is, are you listening? You know, are you and I listening? It's not that God is not speaking. He is. He is loud and clear. Through his word, I mean, through events in our lives, through what's going on in our nation and in the world, God is, is speaking loudly. In fact, he's screaming. But are we listening? You see, an uncommitted, lukewarm attitude does not work in a relationship with God because he requires all of our love. He's to be our first love. He's to be the one that we love and, and treasure above all things. We're to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, more than anything else in this world. And it doesn't take more than just a few seconds of self-examination to realize we fail miserably at that. You know, as a church and as individual believers, we must avoid at all costs becoming lukewarm in our passion for Jesus. These are critical, desperate days. We need to be like the men who came to King David, the men of Issachar, who it says were understanding of the times and knew what Israel should do. As believers, today we need to be like those men, but we're only going to be understanding of the times and know what we should do if we're wholeheartedly committed to Christ, following Him, keeping our eyes upon Him, staying in His Word and in prayer and in fellowship. Loved ones, honest evaluation is essential for spiritual restoration. And so each one of us today need to take our spiritual temperature. We each one need to take our own spiritual temperature. And if you find that you are languishing in lukewarmness, then... Take these three steps. Repent and turn away from your apathetic, half-hearted ways and commitment. Secondly, reopen the Word of God and reopen your heart. And then thirdly, rekindle your passion for Christ purpose in your heart that by his grace and strength you're going to serve him 
with a renewed fervency and passion. You know, may these things be, be true of us. May God work these things in our lives. Our, our church is not exempt from these things. There's lukewarmness in this church. There's lukewarmness in all of our lives. And we wonder why the church in the United States today lacks power, lacks true spiritual influence. Well, we think that we are rich, have prospered, and need nothing. We can handle this on our own. But Jesus says, nope, not at all. Let me tell you how it really is. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth unless you are fervent and repent. That's what the Lord lays before us. And perhaps, you know, you may take your, your own spiritual temperature and, and find out that you're doing just fine. And if that's so, rejoice in the Lord. And then pray that in your pride, you don't stumble and fall. Right? And then pray for revival in your life, in my life, in this church, and in the church across the land. Listen, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in this country, but I think we are on the I, I do think we're on the verge of experiencing some judgment from God. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. And I'm not standing here before you as a prophet. Just as I look around, consider the condition of the church, all the things that are going on in our nation, it just seems that we are ready for a great fall. And all I know is this, one, I, I don't want that to happen. And I'm praying that it won't. But I do know this, that affluence is almost, has almost been the curse of the church. And it's in times of adversity and deep need that people recognize uh, how utterly dependent upon Christ they are, and they begin to live that way. And I don't think anyone here this morning uh, wants to testify to the fact that they are living right now uh, in utter dependence upon Christ, fully committed. So we need to pray, don't we? for ourselves and for one another and for the church and pray that in judgment God will remember mercy. But you know, judgment, and if it comes, there'll be, I shouldn't say if, when it comes, it'll involve opposition and persecution for believers. But that's always been a good thing for the church because it purifies the church. 
It gets rid of fair-weather Christians. People who think they only need God in, in times of trouble but can handle it the rest of the time on their own. No, persecution, well, I certainly do not look forward to it, do not want to experience it, but it's always been good for the church. It has a purifying effect upon the church, and a purified church, no matter how small it is, is a church that is powerful for Christ. So, let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.